Raising children in the D.C. metropolitan region has its challenges, but two places are generally thought to be safe spaces for kids and young adults, school and home. But the recent death of a 13-year-old girl from Blacksburg, Virginia, and an alleged series of sexual assaults at Judge Sylvania Woods Elementary School in Prince George's County have local parents questioning if what we do as families and communities is enough to keep our kids both safe and knowledgeable about the abuse. Joining me now in studio to discuss this is Petula Dvorak. She's a columnist for the Washington Post. Petula, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, we just heard from the CEO of Prince George's County Public Schools, Kevin Maxwell. What's your gut reaction to the school district's response to the alleged sexual assault that took place? Well, you know, the gut you feel for them, you know, that they're in so much pain right now uh, on so many levels. It's a horrible thing to imagine your children. But but looking back, taking a step back, you see the multiple failures in that system to prevent this. Um, let's just start with, you know, we'll move on to the digital one, but, but let's just start with the human failure here of a system that allowed a volunteer and also an aide to be alone with children. Um, the other day, my son was, was uh, in his pregame. They were in the locker room. And uh, the coach was on his way into the locker room, kind of stopped for a second, and asked my husband to come in with him. My husband was chuffed. He thought, oh, you know, I've got this great strategic mind. I'm going to speak up with the kids. Uh, he did not, in fact, ask him to give a pep, pep talk to the boys. But the policy in that league is that a, a, an adult will never be alone with a child in the locker room. And it was second nature for that coach to not even step in without knowing that there'll be an adult with him. And that kind of a policy probably could have thwarted uh, this uh, Predators are sneaky. They'll find ways around it. But but there were probably a few incidents that would not have happened if that school was able to adhere to that kind of policy. So I understand they'll be reviewing them. But the basic human failure is gut-wrenching. Petula Dvorak has sons, boys, 9 and 11. Also joining me in studio is Stephen Balkan. He's the founder and CEO of the Family Online Safety Institute. Your own reaction to what you just heard from the CEO of Prince George's County Schools. Well, like Petula, I feel uh, gutted by uh, such a story. I, I also would say that um, the failures uh, run across the board, but the one glimmer out of all of this, one report that I, I read was that an uncle of one of the children, of the girls, first of all, checked her phone, secondly, saw the image, and then reported it. So if there is any glimmer of hope from this, uh, we say to parents and to caregivers, you know, look at what your kids are doing online. Check what their phones, uh, what, what they've downloaded. And if you see something, report it. And so that, I would just let's make sure that we hold on to that one piece there. Joining us from studios at NPR is Hannah Rosen. She's a writer for The Atlantic. Hannah, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. The go-to line for older parents used to be don't take candy from strangers. Now risk comes in all forms and rarely is candy. You're all parents of kids of different ages. Have you ever had a talk with your children about how to guard themselves against online abuse or exploitation? And how did that go? Hannah, I'll start with you. You have uh, 16, 12, 7. Girl, 16, boy, 12, boy, 7. Yes, exactly. It's funny. You started out, Kojo, saying that, you know, we think of school and home as safe. And it's funny you should say that. It's it's actually statistically the opposite, that a lot of abuse, the vast majority of abuse cases are not stranger cases, but cases that happen with people who know the kid. So a relative or somebody at the school. We actually had an incident just like this in my son's middle school uh, recently. And it was a very, very similar situation of a trusted and beloved teacher who was in the school all the time. So that's the kind of thing that 
people are aware of. It's and precisely so because of those assumptions we have about school and home that makes those the environment in that, that mm-hmm. draw predators. Exactly, and why, you know, stranger danger, which is a much more fearful-sounding thing, and the idea that complete strangers are preying on your children or social media, those are really, really unusual. And much more common is the case that we're talking about now, and much more heartbreaking. Patoli, you mentioned in a recent comment that when you were a teenager, your parents could easily track your whereabouts by just checking in with your friends' parents. Does that kind of accountability exist in the online environment today? How do you check on your sons? Well, the good news is there the the, uh, the online world presents many more pitfall, pitfalls, but it presents so many more strategic tools for parents. Um, I I don't get to know everything that my son is saying to his friends at school, but when I read his texts at night, I know everything. I know which one's the cute girl, and I know all of it. And but the but the problem is is uh, you have to be consistent and strict with monitoring these things. Um, we were talking earlier about the, the tools that parents have in mirroring their kids' behavior online on their own devices, their own phones, their own iPads. Uh, you can do all of this, but you cannot be ignorant of it anymore. It, it, it is uh, available to you, but you have to learn. You have to swallow it, not be the Luddite, and go ahead and learn all of these crazy new apps that kids are putting on their phones. They're the gateway to some of the most horrible things that we're talking about today. Eight hundred four three three eight eight five zero. Are you a parent? What has been your experience with messaging apps geared toward teens? Do you have rules regarding internet and cell phone use? What's worked for you and what hasn't? Eight hundred four three three eight eight five zero. You can go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. Send us a tweet at kojoshow or email to kojo at wamu.org. Stephen, you have girls, slightly mm-hmm. older, 30 and 19. Did you have a talk with them about how to guard themselves against online abuse or exploitation? exploitation? And mm-hmm. What did they teach you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I say that my younger daughter in particular, who's now a, a, a successful sophomore at UMD, was probably my best teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said at 13, Dad, Facebook is my life. But again, when she was a senior in high school, she said, well, no one's on Facebook anymore. <laughs> um, so we, we've been through the entire thing. Going back to the tracking thing, we talk about friending your friend and follow, but don't stalk. Uh, your kids online. Um, so it is an important and a fine line somewhere between being a helicopter parent and a free range kid. You know, we, we've got to find something that's somewhere in the middle, a happy medium. I mean, just for instance, uh, when my younger daughter got her driver's license, one condition we had for her taking the car was for her to download an app called Life360, and there are others similar, so that we literally didn't have to text her to see, are you on your way home? We could just see the car moving. Uh, and so those sorts of things, I think, uh, would put parents a lot more at ease with where their kids are at. Well, just to get back to the comment you made, Petula, about not playing the Luddite anymore. <laughs> exactly. How do you keep track of popular apps that your kids might be using? Well, I'm lucky. My kids are still small, so I can trick them. I'm nowhere near the territory that Helen and Stephen are in. But, but you know, we... We know that there are certain apps, and Kick is the one that has been come that has been named in most of these cases. And uh, you you have to read up. Um, there are a lot of great websites out there that um, will tell you which apps to look for and which ones are are the the, the most provocative and sometimes the most dangerous uh, on your kid's phone. Learn that um, the Kick app is particularly uh, it it wasn't designed to be nefarious, but you can create a personality and a profile there with no information. And secondly, you can target uh, your audience, target the people you reach out to by age. 
And although it's the hip new cool thing for kids, predators have figured that out as well. Um, that's a brilliant marketing tool. The Washington Post uses Kick. You know, if we have a story on a you know, uh, beer pong contest and then we want to push it to a certain demographic or potty training. It's a, hopefully a different demographic. Um, that's all good, but, but it is being used by people who want to reach out to your kids. And that was how, um, the, the predators found and, and reached out to, uh, the 13 year old girl in Blacksburg. And as I mentioned, you have three kids, seven, 12, 16. How do their online privileges vary? <laughs> it really is child by child. I mean, here's a sobering lesson for you, which I learned reporting a story in The Atlantic about sexting. Mm-hmm. All of the kids that I reported on had had pro- social media profiles that their parents could and did monitor, meaning on Facebook and Instagram, and then a completely separate online world where their names were things like Brazil Baby 367 that their parent had no idea about. I only found out about these by asking kid to kid to kid, hey, what's what who, who who's the you know, who's got this Twitter profile and who's this person and who's that person? But the adults were utterly oblivious of this parallel world. They only knew about the presentable whitewashed world that the teens had up there for them to peruse. So so there's a little warning to all the parents. For me, it's different with every kid. Once I learned that, I was like, hmm, if I just bear down on them, they can just sneak out because there's endless numbers of new social media apps and profiles that they can create. So maybe I'll try for the general principle, like what's a commenter, who can you, can, who can you trust? And when, this was the most important lesson, do you know when you're in over your head? When somebody's really coming at you, either somebody your own age in a bullying situation or somebody older than you, then you have to come to me. So I tried for more broad lessons. Here now is Emily in Woodbridge, Virginia. Emily, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. I just wanted to comment um, on what the CEO of Prince George's County said. I'm a school counselor in an elementary school. And in the state of Virginia, we're mandated to teach certain family life education standards, and one of those is good touch, bad touch. And I'm currently in the process this month of teaching kindergarten through fifth graders about what is appropriate touch, what is inappropriate touch, where they shouldn't be touched, and that they should definitely tell adults if someone tries to touch them in those areas. And so, and you know, parents are told that we're going to teach their kids this. They can watch um, the materials or read the materials before we teach it to their kids. And some can opt out if they choose to take their child out of those lessons. But I'm kind of horrified that Prince George's County has no curriculum in place for that in this day and age when kids are so bombarded with information. I needed you here when I was talking with Kevin Maxwell. We could have asked him that question specifically. You seem to be suggesting that that program probably does not exist either in Prince George's County in general or that school in particular. Is that what you think? That's my guess. Sounds like a pretty good guess. Thank you very much for your call. We go on to Thomas in Acomac, Virginia. Thomas, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hey, Kajia. Thank you for um, taking my call. I just wanted to bring up um, my experience with youth. I've been in the Boy Scouts of America all my life, and from the beginning I have had youth protection training as a youth. Um. So and even as an adult, we have very comprehensive. Every handbook we have comes with a parents' guide that they are that they go over it. And you know, like in Cub Scouting, it's one of the obligations for the parents to go over that with their youth. 
not just for the parents' edification, but for the youth as well. You know, so I think not only do we need to be teaching and training and making lots of comprehensive things to the adults, but having the youth know the, you know, not just have the, um, like a vague picture, but very detailed information like, you know, when a guy does this, maybe you should tell your parents about this, not say, oh, they're bad people, but give detailed information to the youth, you know, because they are in a very dangerous world um, that, that can be. So you, um, two are, you two are surprised that this wasn't apparently being taught in that school in Prince George's County? Well, it's not just in that school, but it, it's everywhere. Youth as a rule in, you know, at least Let me ask our panelists if they've had that experience at all, Petula. Well, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of, of trying to get uh, across the board rules is, is a good one. It's, it's uh, you know, parents are responsible for that. Parents need to know everything. My daughter, when she was in high school, there was a situation where the cross-country uh, coach uh, was actually having sex with one of the girls. Uh, and, you know, he was meant to be the trusted adult uh, and, and giving guidance and, and direction. The school obviously had to review its policies and talk about um, age-appropriate behavior and, and resiliency amongst the kids. Hannah Rosen, any experience with age-appropriate counseling or teaching in school having to do with touching? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, at least in the D.C. public schools my children have gone to, they do it pretty systematically. I mean, they do it. They, it's now pretty well in place. They have a program for elementary age kids, a program for middle school kids. They're pretty good about informing the parents in case parents want to opt out. And I think they try and use it as a launching point for parents to have their own discussions with their kid. And in the incident that happened at my at the middle school where where my kids go, you know, they had several community meetings and psychologists there. I think the world is prepared when these issues do happen for people to process them. Did you, um, Stephen, and your wife ever have to make concessions to your daughters when it came to online privileges? What, what does that kind of compromise look like in these situations? Um, I don't know if she would put it that way because uh, <laughs> she had to wait till her 13th birthday to go on to Facebook because, you know, everybody was on Facebook at 11 and 12. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we ended up using um, both her cell phone use and, and social media use as a, almost like a, a reward for good behavior. And, and actually, it was something that we took away if dishes weren't done or the, her room was uh, untidy and so on. But she and, and, and I see this with other kids are always pushing the boundaries. Um, uh, Hannah makes a very good point about the uh, sort of way in which kids can go online uh, undetected. Most kids have around 20 apps on their phones at any one time. And so it is very, very difficult for parents to get to know all of the various different ways in which to control them. We simply say to parents, check to see if those apps are public or private and whether they're anonymous or not. Because I think the anonymity issue is a really important one. If I see Brazil Baby 367, I would not be thinking that this could possibly be my kid, but you never know. We're talking with Petula Dvorak. She's a columnist for the Washington Post. Hannah Rosen is a writer for The Atlantic, and Stephen Balcom is the founder and CEO of the Family Online Safety Institute. Want to join the conversation? Give us a call at 800-433-8850. How do you strike a balance between privacy and independence with your child? And in 2014, you wrote a feature for The Atlantic Magazine 
magazine titled The Overprotected Kid, which examines childhood independence and the merits of free-range parenting. Does the value of letting your child explore and test limits apply at all to online behavior? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really do think it does. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm worried listening to these other guys because I don't monitor quite that closely. I monitor in the general principles. And I think it is important to remember in the context of what I wrote there that kids are vastly less preyed upon now than they have been in a long time. And there are some theories uh, even by the by the groups that monitor child abuse closely, that part of that is because they do exploration online that they don't do in person, which is painful for us to think about. But but there is but there is some at least correlation between the expansion of online access for kids and the fact that they are generally physically safer than they have been in years. Nobody really knows what the connection is, but but those two things are simultaneously true. How do you strike that balance? Well, I'm I, I'm lucky. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to. <laughs> do this. Um, but right now, all of my kids' electronics, their apps go through me. They can't download something um, on the iPhone unless I approve it. I change that password weekly, and so then I know that what they're downloading. And that's one step. I, again, I, I, I'm not uh, naive in thinking that I'm going to be able to keep this long into the teen years. Uh, that's a point. And the point that Hannah makes is really important. The free-range idea of letting your kid walk to the corner store, the kid, the, the, the amount of times that a child gets snatched are like point zero zero one percent by a stranger. Um, the, the danger is that, that in the online world, the predators, and especially in the case in Blacksburg, become the known. They become the friends. Um, Nicole thought she was going to marry this 18-year-old mm-hmm. boy. Um, they're, 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 they, appear, they start out as strangers, but you become friends in a very intimate way very quickly, uh, especially when all your emotions are stripped down and you're communicating online. What 13-year-old girl wouldn't want a boy to listen to everything she says, to tell her she's right, to tell her she's cute? That all happens, and then, then the stranger becomes the known, and that's where you're into the kind of danger that we talk about. There are, of course, apps for parents that desire a closer way to monitor their children. Let's take a listen to an ad for TeenSafe software. By setting up a TeenSafe account, you're able to view their text messages, even deleted texts, their WhatsApp and KickChat sessions, what sites they visited. You can even monitor the interactions they've had through social media and Instagram. Stephen, this app has been showing up in a lot of news spots about teen online safety. How popular are tools like TeenSafe? How effective would you say they are? Well, first of all, Kojo, we've had uh, parental controls since the 90s. Uh, uh, AOL and Microsoft and many of the other major ISPs and the telcos all now have uh, parental controls. Every cell phone that you can purchase now has inbuilt um, safety features. And it's just something, it's really, it's almost a generational issue of getting parents to know and how to use them. But then you have the the more sophisticated apps that I think sometimes cross the line into stalking. And I, <laughs> I also don't think, and I've done this once just to try out an app, to watch every single text coming through that my daughter was sending, and she was used to send a lot. It's mind-numbing. and Time-consuming. And that, too. <laughs> um, you know, I think, actually, sometimes just using the phone bill. I, I mean, I know that uh, Verizon and AT&T both have this ability that you can see every, not what's in the text, but you can see every text that was sent and received. 
And that gives you a clue that maybe your daughter shouldn't have been up at 2 in the morning responding to someone uh, or that a particular phone number just keeps coming up and up and up. Who is this? And by the way, the best parental control there is is talking with your kids. It's just keeping those open lines of communication going. On to David, who is listening online in San Francisco. David, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, hi, Kojo. Uh, you know, I was kind of bugged by the very idea that the school budgets may have to pay for paranoia. And uh, I, ever since 9-11, we've seen our budgets expanding uh, in a, based upon paranoia. And so when you look at it in economic terms, uh, they actually even said this in the very early days of uh, John Poindexter's uh, total information awareness, that they wanted to have 4% of the U.S. population as snitches, but in addition, they wanted to capture everything forever. Now, if you think about it as a taxpayer, why do I want to... Uh, pay for a paranoid's uh, uh, worst dreams. Uh, every nightmare they have, they get a new budget, and all of these budgets become top secret. So well, we well, we're, we're not. For we're, for allow us. me to interrupt, David. We're not talking about nightmares here. We're talking about two specific real-life incidents that occurred with young children, one at a Prince George's County Elementary School, the other in Clarksburg, Virginia, in which a 13-year-old was lured to her death. These are not paranoid fantasies that we're talking about here. We're talking about incidents that actually happened recently in real life. So what are you talking about? Back to Davy Crockett days, there was a mother who killed all her children and stuffed them up a chimney, and they wrote songs about it for 50 years. Yes. So you, you can actually find these incidents, you know, thousands of years ago, all the way back to, to Roman days. In other words, we should do nothing because it's costing well, too much I'm, and we're expanding our school budgets unnecessarily. Yeah, our school budgets are going broke, and every time one I of these I don't think that argument is going to fly, fly with any parent that I know, David, so I'm going to have to shut you down for the time being. If you do have a constructive suggestion to make, you can call 800-433-8850 or send email to kojo at wamu.org. Let's hear what Hans in Arlington, Virginia, has to say. Hans, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, good morning, Coach. Thanks for taking my call. Right. Um, I have a two teenage boys, 16 and 13, and a 10-year-old girl, and they're all online with a fair amount of frequency. And I actually don't monitor what they do, and I've thought about it, and I've struggled with it. I've run the monitoring software, and then it felt like it was more invasive and, in fact, counterproductive to be monitoring everything they're doing because there's such technology is constantly slipping out from under us, I've worked in IT for 20 years. It's always changing. And so the idea that we can somehow monitor our way into kids' compliance of rules isn't going to work. And I, we have very open lines of communication with them, and we talk about what, we're, what they're doing online and whether they're spending quality time and what, what they know about the people they're communicating with. And that's really all that we can do as parents, the same as sending them out in the world. I can't tell them to not walk through the streets and never – interact with anyone else. I, you know, online is a big, scary world, and I get the predator issue, but I just I feel like the monitoring every single thing my children does is, in fact, only going to counter, is only going to bite me in the behind. 
You really, you raise a very valid issue, um, Hans. Um, Han, I'll start with you. Apps like these tend to spark fierce debate about how much monitoring is too much. As parents, we can all imagine what it's like for an app or a stranger to cross the line of privacy. But what does crossing the line look like for a parent? Have you ever made such a mistake with your children? No, I'm on Team Hans here. (laughs) I've generally found the open lines of communication. I will also say I haven't really been tested. Um, If I had a teenage daughter who was constantly on social media apps, who I felt was really vulnerable to the kind of bullying or temptation or really kind of sensitive to those social pressures, I would feel differently. I don't have that kind of daughter, and I I kind of, you know, I I sort of emotionally monitor to see if she's ever moving in that direction. For me, it's more like the time time waste, the same thing as it is for adults, you know, with my children, like, are they spending too much time doing useless things online, kind of wasting time? It's a time suck the same way it is for adults, like procrastinating and not doing homework or doing useless stuff. That worries me more than the predator monitoring issue. How about you, Petula? Well, I, and, and again, my, my kids are little, so it's 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 easy for me to say this now. I might uh, I might change my mind quite a bit, but I think having those open relationships with your kids is, of course, the number one thing. Um, you know, the 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 thing is, a lot of these the kids who end up in trouble are already heading toward trouble, and their kids. You know, you need to be the kind of parent who knows that your thirteen year old is being bullied at school and is miserable and shutting herself in the bedroom, and that's when the danger happens um you know there it doesn't have to just be uh you know on the telephone uh, xbox we had a recent case where a girl a 12 year old girl was kidnapped uh, by a 32 year old who uh, she was gaming with on xbox there are, no you cannot of course you cannot monitor every single one of these things but having those talks with kids is important and being aware making those kids know that you know is a big part too i probably let on that i know a lot more than i really do with my kids um and that fear might uh, might let them uh, be a little more reserved in the relationships they try to create. Stephen Balcom, cross the line, have you? Um, sure, from time to time, and I'm uh, and then <laughs> step back again. I, I mean, first of all, my daughter hated my job when uh, when she was younger, and um, <laughs> but now she quite likes it because I have connections in the tech industry, so she's looking for internships. But um, no, I think one important thing out of all of this, by the way, and we say this to parents: be a good digital role model yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't bring the phone to the dinner, dining room table. Put it away when you sit down at a restaurant. Uh, don't text and drive. I mean, kids are watching their own parents' uses of digital technology in in a way that perhaps we're not always aware. And, and we have we have complaints from from first and second graders that they can't talk to mommy because she's always on her laptop. <laughs> so we need to also uh, better and up our game. Got to take a short break. If you've called, stay on the line. We will get to your calls. If you'd like to call, the number is 800-433-8850. Who should be responsible for a teenager's safety online? The teenager in question, parent or guardian, or the creators of the apps that they use? 800-433-8850. Send us a tweet at Kojo Show or email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Nan. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. 
Go to wamu.org slash lifteveryvoice to learn the stories of these incredible African-American changemakers and to hear special interviews spotlighting those who have impacted the arts, sciences, sports, and activism. Go to wamu.org slash lifteveryvoice. Welcome back. We're talking about child safety in the digital world with Hannah Rosen. She's a writer for The Atlantic and co-host of NPR's Invisibilia. Stephen Balcom is the founder and CEO of the Family Online Safety Institute. And Petula Dvorak is a columnist for The Washington Post. I'd like to go directly to the phones. Here now is Rebecca in Mount Airy, Maryland. Rebecca, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Koja. I was just calling um, to kind of echo an earlier caller. You might not have been stating it in the nicest way, but about um, the spending in schools. Sure. I think it's just another example of shifting the responsibility to the schools versus on the teachers. And maybe I'll change my tune in a few years because I have two little boys right now. So we're not there yet. Um, but I think that it, and the same with uh, monitoring apps, it seems like you would better spend your time getting to know your kids teaching them the lessons, learning to trust them versus the school needing to teach it and you needing to read their call logs at night. Interesting question. Stephen, local schools are also learning what it means to have boundaries with kids and their privacy. In D.C., Councilmember David Grosso recently introduced a bill that would protect students from schools who demand to see their personal smartphones or social media accounts, even if the use of these devices violates school policy. What is the school's role in these kinds of conversations? Very, very difficult. I mean, you have to say that kids at some stage in their lives and in their development have privacy rights themselves. Or do we say from zero to 18, they have none? So, I mean, that's that's the tricky balance. Obviously, somewhere around the age of 12, 13, I would say that they begin to start to have some rights. And as they go further, they're seniors in high school, for heaven's sakes. Of course, they have some privacy. But it, it's it's finding that line. I don't necessarily have the, the direct answer for that. I, I do think, though, going back to what the caller is talking about, the emphasis on parents, the problem, of course, is that parents are having to make decisions at an earlier and earlier age as well. We now have tablets for two-year-olds. We have potty training apps, for heaven's sakes. Um, whereas, you know, we, we used to just be worried about, you know, whether I should buy my high school or a, a cell phone or not. So we believe it's very important to get direct messages, to get tips and tools. And that's why we developed Good Digital Parenting, a, an initiative that my own organization has that creates the seven steps to good digital parenting, for instance, just to give parents something to hold on to. Hannah Petula, this bill is part of a national ACLU effort to protect student privacy. Is this campaign headed in the right direction? Would you support it in D.C., Hannah? Well, the sexting case I wrote about involved dozens of girls being pressured by boys to send them naked pictures. And then the police sets up shop at the school and the school gets involved. Now, we would all agree this is an issue for parents to get involved in. Um, and then the, and then we would all uncomfortably have to consider, you know, did the kids do anything illegal or something that should land them in court? There are lots and lots of cases across the country where usually young girls in high school do this and then, you know, end up in a police station. Um, so I think this is the kind of thing that the ACLU is worried about, as opposed to, say, going directly for the guys who set up this ring or, or, or maybe the older guys who, who made them do it or some other way of addressing this besides legal ramifications. So I think the ACLU is getting at something real. Patula, student privacy. 
Well, they're, you know, they're, they are, they do have a good point, but I, I, I would just hope that they're in rules that are enforced. A, a kid shouldn't be texting during class, and we've seen way too many classrooms where the teacher has lost control of the class and kids are openly texting and, and, and talking. And, and we're asking teachers to do yet another thing. It's, it's really easy to try and, I mean, remember how we passed notes and how good we got the, at, at that? I mean, texting is even easier. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, the idea of of banning phones from school doesn't sit well with me. That's how I communicate with my children after school and when we have a mess up with carpool or something. But um, but better, mom. What about checking phones in at the at the front desk um, during class days? Some schools have tried that um, with varying degrees of success. Here now is Kaleem in Clarksburg, Maryland. Kaleem, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, it's it's Aleem, but I just wanted to uh, just wanted to speak to uh, one of the previous callers and the the other young lady that called in not too long ago, with regard to uh, the school budgets and that sort of thing. I, I don't consider myself very fiscally conservative with regard to education, but I do recognize that at times there are these pendulum swings uh, that tend to be based on uh, some type of of situation that happens that you know, and you have these 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 serious situations that happen period periodically through time that we tend to exaggerate our response to. And I think that's what the previous caller was, was trying to make. And I tend to agree that there's, the money could be possibly better spent elsewhere uh, on, on educational programs as opposed to just examining the systematic failure of what program that's already in place in schools to protect children maybe have failed. So maybe it doesn't need additional budgeting or money. It just needs additional attention to improve a system. Stephen Balcom, the pace at which the digital world moves is what I think is prompting a lot of educators to say we have to at least try to get ahead of this before it catches up with us and we find ourselves placing students in dangerous situations without really knowing it. Um, well, yes, there is, I would say, an exponential uh, rate of change going on. Um, we used to be very – do you remember MySpace? I mean, we were all very considered. And <laughs> no, the, I don't. Uh, well, the attorneys general wanted to raise the uh, limit to 16, if you recall. That was mm-hmm. quite the effort. And, you know, in those days, we were concerned about one or two of these darned websites. Now there are a multitude, thousands and thousands of apps, and no doubt one has just been released since we've been on air. Um, I, I, I think that – and, and I, I really appreciate what the caller is saying. And, and also, we mustn't give in to fear. Fear has a tendency to switch off our frontal lobes. So our, our reasoning ability, our ability to make judgments and, and good calls uh, goes out the window. So I would say, yes, look at the existing policies and see if you can reinforce them with some new knowledge about apps like Kick that we didn't know about before. On to Barbara in Bethesda, Maryland. Barbara, your turn. Yes, mine will be very short, and I truly do not know how it could possibly be done, but I think it's up to the schools, not just to the parents, but I think that there should be some way to teach children what can happen to them, not to frighten them. I know it would be difficult. I don't know how it could be done, but I believe that's the only way to save our children. Technology is growing and growing, and it's never going to stop. And to give children an opportunity to understand what could happen, and I know it's horrible to even think about, you don't want to frighten your children. But whose responsibility do you think that is, parents or schools or both? Both. Hannah Rosen, what do you say? 
parents, definitely. I mean, I, I almost think we should put technology in the background, just kind of admit it exists, it's out there, you know, it can be used for both good and bad, sort of not focus so much on the technology and focus on the kind of literacy, the morals around it, the values that we want to protect and just say, like, we want to do this in life as we want to do this in technology. Just as schools have been so effective at countering bullying, I mean, that's a great success of the modern day school is making that message absolutely clear, just like expand that to technology. You know, there's definitely a social role for schools to play. Got an email from Michelle in D.C. who says, if you monitor your teen's text, they'll just move everything to Snapchat, where you can't track anything. There's no app to monitor Snapchats, right? Is there, Stephen? <laughs> well, unfortunately, there is an app for that. I mean, you can literally, and I've, I talked to a parent who did this. He mirrored his 17-year-old daughter's cell phone, including Snapchat, to his own. And he felt that he had a duty and a right to protect her. I suggested that perhaps he had gone overboard with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you, if that's what you want to do, you can do that. Here's Scott in Baltimore, Maryland. Scott, your turn. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Oh, I didn't hear any click or anything. Thank you. There's been some great comments from the panel, from yourself, and as well from the callers. Um, I'm CEO of a company that's built a monitoring platform for parents to collaboratively engage with their kids. And so I have some uh, long sort of lot of research into the subject, and I think you're offering some great insights to parents. We're engaging with schools to put the product out to parents and putting the responsibility on the parents to have the conversations with their kids, but putting some of the responsibility on the schools to educate families, to talk about what can happen in the digital realm with kids, especially when they're entering social media use in their early teens. So what we've built is a machine learning platform to analyze social media traffic off the child's device and then push collaboratively a notification to both parent and child through the app on each on, on their devices to flag content that parents find objectionable. So nudity, bullying, references to drugs and alcohol, things of that nature, to start a conversation because we believe, and the research has proven, Parental engagement is the only way to mitigate the negative effects of unpleasant interactions. But what, you're essentially, what you essentially seem to be saying is that parents should be able to have access to every single thing their child does online in order to start that conversation. What I hear our parents and guests here saying is that the conversation should really be started before that, that this should be an ongoing conversation and not a post-spying conversation. Right, and we're we're not for spying. I mean, we did a lot of research into this, and we built Raccoon as the name of our app, and it's R-A-K-K-O-O-N.com. Um, when we built it, we interviewed lots of families, lots of teachers, educators, parents, and kids, and kids said, look, I don't want to be spied on. And parents said, I don't want to spy. I don't have the time or the inclination, but I want to understand that I want to have conversations with my kids with the insight of what's going on. And some of the apps out there, even if you friend people, on, on the social media, if you friend your kids, you still don't have access to direct messages and things of that nature. So by okay. getting that access and then filtering it through machine learning, we boil it down from the hundreds of posts to just the few that give you insight, and you can start that conversation. And we're seeing in our beta trials that are ongoing right now in Baltimore, we're seeing kids modify their behavior, stop following okay. people, and interact differently. On Running out of time very quickly, <laughs> but thank you very much for your call. 
This conversation, someone asks, is largely for parents, but Stephen, you mentioned a watchful uncle at the beginning mm-hmm. of our conversation. What can adults and mentors who are not parents do to watch out for the kids in their lives? How do they also respect the child's parents in the process? That uncle sounds like me, an intrusive uncle. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talk about parents and caregivers, and obviously the uncle was, for whatever reason, perhaps looking after uh, this child after school mm-hmm. and took his responsibility as a caregiver seriously, I'm, and I applaud him. I mean, as, as a kid growing up only a few, few blocks from here, I mean, we had a lot of adults looking after us as we roamed the neighborhood. This is now a new neighborhood that we have to keep an eye on for our kids, and we actively encourage parents and respected adults to do the same. Stephen Balcom, he is the founder and CEO of the Family Online Safety Institute. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Patula Dvorak is a columnist with the Washington Post. Patula, always a pleasure. Thank you. And Hannah Rosen is a writer for The Atlantic and co-host of NPR's Invisibilia. Hannah, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.